0: Yo, this is Sam Yunnan, host of My Summer Lair. Did you hear the one about Jesse David Fox, a writer and journalist living in Brooklyn, New York? He's been working at Vulture since 2012, where he's now a senior editor focusing on comedy. Seriously, dude's like a professor of comedy. In our conversation, listen to how many times my man says, I think. When it comes to comedy, this guy gets it. Jesse hosts and created Good One, a podcast about jokes and the comedians who tell them. As he calls it in this conversation that I have with him, he calls it an excavation. Guests have included Jim Gaffigan, Bill Burr, a whole bunch of names, you know them all. And when I hung up with him, he was recording a good one episode with Roy Wood Jr. Check out Roy's outstanding father figure. It's a comedy special. I think it was by uh, Comedy Central. That's your homework. That's it for me. Don't forget to tip your waitresses. Here's my comedy conversation with Jesse David Fox.
1: Live from PJH, Girth Radio in session.
0: Well, because, yeah, this is part is interesting because you want to kind of really stress with Janine Garofalo that she was important and yes. she had a place in time and history. But it's a weird thing because when you, you do a lot of writing about comedy and you can kind of classify and like you can see like the, uh, yeah. Richard Pryor is done this work or whatever and he's kind of moved the needle forward and things like this. But it's weird because it's like the actual person sometimes doesn't realize or yeah. like – because you're just going and tell jokes, right? Yeah, like, I don't
1: think any – It's I think it's very rare for a person to be sort of aware of themselves as sort of a – thing that was like as a sort of seminal figure i don't i can't think of anyone who's like aware that they're <laughs> important in that way or to think of themselves that way they might you think, think them- Chappelle, maybe um i don't know i think he i think he's i think so i think Chappelle's this weird example of a person who like is aware of how people talk about him and sort of has leaned into it now later in his life these sort of like this narrative that was built around him after he left he seemed to like really embrace you know, like, I think, I think, like, Jerry Seinfeld is aware of certain things. And I think he's aware that people kind of copied him. I bet Chris Rock is. I want Martin Lawrence. I guess they're, yeah, I bet, like, a lot of people. I mean, I know Sarah Silverman's aware that sort of, like, she invented a style of comedy. And then everyone was like, that's a great style of comedy. We're all going to do that. Like, like that sort of, there's just the basic idea that, like, that contrast of a, sort of a Girly character or a naive character with sort of ironic irony to do sort of race to play with race or gender just didn't exist, and then she sort of invented it in this in this very specific way, and then lots of people did it. It's you know it was a training wheels that a lot of people did, and I think she saw other people do it, and I think it it's unclear if that's part of the reason why she stopped doing it. I think she just stopped doing it also because she's like it's a hard style for a person to do forever which I've talked about, that she completely changed personas, which is like a very rare thing that very few people have ever pulled off. But yeah, I I think some people, the really cocky people, probably are aware that they're...
0: Is it cocky though? Or is it just like, you mentioned Chris Rock and Chappelle, for example, they still need a little bit of Foot in like the commoner world, I guess. I don't yeah. know how else to put it. You know what I mean? Like, they can't just be like the president of the United States or something, just sealed up in the White House and just yeah. in that bubble, right? They need to kind of know what the price of milk is, and yeah, like, I think our struggles.
1: I think Chris Rock is less concerned with that. I think Chris Rock, and I haven't seen his. I haven't seen the sort of perform version of his New Hour. So I've seen him do this is the one on, then the he's touring on
0: yeah inf- Infidelity and all yeah, that. Yeah. I've seen him work on
1: it, yeah, and. But by him working on it, it's a sort of him saying premises and bombing for an hour and a half. And you're like, <laughs> it's crazy that anyone is willing to do that. And he's very aware of that he's wealthy, right? He, he's actually one, a rare comedian. I think is pulling off the sort of jokes about like like oh and i'm rich and this is what my situation is or yeah like, like, I can, that I can't
0: dentist bit where like he lives next door to a dentist and he's not like
1: a celebrity dentist <laughs> yeah, yeah. or something like that he's just a regular white man dentist <laughs> or he has a i think it's his joke where he's like i can't relate to my kids they grew up rich <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and i think that is he's but he's always a little bit more detached from the sort of common person that like he's a t- like a thinker of a top He views the world and he sort of comments upon it. Chappelle, I think, plays a little, tries to play a little bit both ways. And I actually don't think he's figured it out. He's brilliant. And he's sort of his skill set is one of the greatest that we'll ever have. But it, it seems like he was like sort of a, his young, when he was younger, his style was sort of very youthful and silly. And even when he tackled complicated subjects, he did it with like a very silly way and he'd laugh at himself. And now he talks real slow and low, and it's definitely from the position of being like an older guy, even though he's like forty-two, I know years old, and he talks like he's like seventy years old.
0: I feel like the difference between like Chappelle and Chris Rock is like they both think about a subject a lot, like race or something like that, and then. Chris Rock is able to then kind of package it into humor. And Chappelle, I think, sometimes he sputters a little bit. He'll say something like a real good observation about black culture or states or racism. And you're like, that's really profound. That's really insightful. But it's not funny.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think Chris Rock is better at it than I think probably anyone else is sort of like. He's killing it. He sort of at um, taking a point of figuring out how to... condense it and sort of focus it and explain it he's the greatest uh setup writer ever, of all time is how i describe him yeah And it's also there's jokes about him um andy kindler goes like he's working a new hour but it's only 30 minutes because he repeats everything he says twice. yeah because <laughs> <laughs> he does he'll state the premise and then he'll state the premise again and chappelle chappelle's thing it's like a superpower and it's almost like with great power comes great responsibility because he could he can talk he can basically bring everything down real slow and people will listen to him so then he can say anything and it's funny but it it's a it's a question where if he does it too much for so long you're like what is the thing that he's doing and what is the show and i think i've written positively and negatively about dave chappelle i think everybody has and i think each person assumes that i'm on the other side that they are and chappelle I mean, I think his last two specials have examples of the best and worst comedy of like the last year yeah. because he's so talented at certain things, but also sometimes really lazy at some things and not he doesn't know he's lazy in so much as people are laughing have always been laughing at these jokes. It's just that he has an ability to make people laugh. And I think Chris Rock's big thing is he scrutinizes who's laughing at things and why to a level that most comedians don't. And I don't know why he does it. I just think he's like, why are people laughing? At this, you know, he he had a lot of jokes about his divorce, and he sent in a Rolling Stone profile that he's scaling it back because his wife is not a stand-up comedian, and it felt he felt it was unfair to her and her uh, his kids to have him be able to talk about a thing and have her not be able to talk about a thing. And I think a lot of comedians would not do that because.
0: A laugh is a laugh.
1: Yeah, a laugh is a laugh, and also it's interesting. And it'll be actually, like, even a laugh, I think it'll be incredibly revelatory. I mean, I saw him do stuff, talk about cheating in a way, so frank, in a way that I literally have never seen anyone, so much that he's, like, saying people's, like, names, and you're like, I don't know if that's a laugh.
0: Yeah, no, he... he... (laughs) And... He's really open with this like new hour where like he's kind of working through the divorce, the infidelity, the yeah. uh all those kind of hot button topics.
1: Yeah, but I think what he is, he's of a school and a few people are of this school, which is like what I put in an hour is different than what I will do in front of an audience. Some people are like, look, I did an hour and whatever I taped, that was the thing. And sometimes it's the perfect version, sometimes not a perfect. I do specials so people capture what I'm like right now. And other people and chris rock is most famously because he says this all the time which is like that special should be special and it should mean that like it should this, be a normal yeah yeah and it's this should be the material at the time you want to present it and, and you have to have a reason to present it i'm interviewing roy wrote jr for the podcast in a couple of days at at just for laughs and he's another person that he's like these are jokes i can do live audience and these are jokes that if i'm doing a special it has to be for these reasons and i have to think about what type of audience I'm doing them from and what type of audience I watch them on television. And I, I don't think it, there's no right and wrong. It's just a matter of like differences and personal opinions of what you want. Because I think there's the other side, which is like, oh, you want people that are just free. They they're not. You they don't you don't want material that's that worked through that it seems like they're doing it for the five thousandth time. You know, Janine has never written down a thing in her life. Yeah, to sort of writes down bullet points and then who knows where the jokes are gonna go she's like i don't remember if i've done a thing before you know i talked to her today and she Ginny Garoffalo, i can't remember if we've talked about her on like it she's like she was doing bits from her last special and i could totally see she was not sure that it was on her last special because I talked to her like it's like i never watch it i never watch anything i say where there are the comedians who re-listen to every set they do can edit their own specials it's interesting like a uh, judd apatow recently taped his specials and he taped four of them most will do two and they'll kind of edit together sometimes they'll do two and just pick the best one but he'll do four and i guess slice it like who knows and actually that's the thing i'm most interested about about it to see how much a person with a sort of director's mind will influence a special like that
0: yeah and that's kind of a weird thing it's four different audiences potentially i know there might be a couple of repeaters but generally it's gonna be four different audiences so they will they would react to different things too. Yes. Um. So that would also be kind of interesting to see how much of the audience and stuff he kind of leaves in the reaction for like the four four yeah. different audiences for one joke.
1: Yeah, I think some comedians are aware of how they think an audience should laugh. I remember, uh, I interviewed Pete Holmes about his second special. He's talking about his first special. He added laughter back in because like the audience was wrong. This <laughs> is how much the audience should have laughed at this joke. It's <laughs> like, amazing. He's like, I don't mind admitting that as a it was sort of not the right audience. Blah blah blah, and. I think there's that. I think if you're really loose, it matters because your your set is based upon how they're reacting to you. Chris Rock is a person that way. I think it was in his the second of the two Netflix special, not Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, right. where someone kind of heckled a little bit, and he like totally switched personas, and you can tell he he was adapting to the fact that someone made noise. And I think he he likes that sort of looseness, and and what I always say. People talk about political correctness and comedy, which is like it never will go away. The thing, and this is not to defend or not, or support anyone or uh, condemn anyone. The thing that's always interesting to me about when a lot of the times when people do offensive jokes in their specials, it's like by the time they did that joke tape, they probably have done it in front of a hundred audiences. So then a hundred people have told them this is the version of the joke that is appropriate. What I think comedians have a hard time with. It's a few things. One, if you have fans, your fans give you the benefit of the doubt, right? The benefit benefit of the doubt of like, oh, we know what side you're on. Your non-fans, your neutrals, not your enemies, your neutrals, and definitely your enemies, don't give you a benefit of the doubt. We're not in those rooms. Don't have that same contact. It's hard to do comedy for people who are not fans of you or don't like you, especially when you're at the level of Dave Chappelle or Jerry Seinfeld or Chris Rock or Louis. You know, Chris Rock, attacks that by like bombing for months before he actually does sets but it's hard for a comedian to you know you think you're getting a representative sample but like when you're a person like dave chappelle it's an event when you do release comedy it's been forever you're gonna get people who don't watch that much comedy who only kind of know you from the sketches that they've been referred to by friends and that is a very different audience than the audience that comes to see dave chappelle (laughs)
0: We're also at this outrage culture part, too, now. So, as Chappelle will say something or whatever. They'll take a joke out of context. Sure. And then they'll put, like, he said something about gay people or black people or, sure. like, whatever the hot button topic this week is. And so, sometimes, too, that also kind of mars the joke a little bit, too, yes. right? Because then it's just, like, it's presented in, like, on a page, on a screen, and there's no voice. Yeah. There's no, like, what he was leading up to before, sure. where it fit in the bit. All those classic.
1: Yeah. I mean, as a person who's taken Dave Chappelle's jokes out of context and it became a, a whole thing. I had very complicated feelings about it. I still don't know how I feel about it. I, cause I, I saw him live at radio city. He did a residency, right? Yeah, so, he did a residency and it was a lot of music. Uh, the roots. Yeah. And I, I, I went and so he did, uh, a lot of trans related jokes, like 25 minutes, which is a long time. That's essentially if you did an hour, a half your special would be about trans jokes from a person with no sort of relationship to the issue. Mm-hmm. And, I was like, these jokes are not working. They're sort of, they're not failing. And they're not, it's not wrong for him to be able to say them. That was not the, and I did not write the piece that was like Dave Chappelle should be like barred from existing for doing jokes in these areas. I was saying, I you know, I wrote essentially what he's trying to do is walk a tightrope, right? The sort of game he's playing with the audience is like, see as I can walk along the edge of a topic that is edgy and not fall down, and me not falling down is titillating and exciting, and I'm going to play with that, and that's going to build a tension that will be released when I say something funny. If you fall down in doing so three times, it's not fun to watch anymore. Yeah. You're like, you can still laugh a little bit, but it's not the same thing, and he gets laughs because Dave Chappelle, but you're like, this is not a success in doing comedy. It doesn't mean it won't be. The real debate was at what point when you as a person who writes about comedy, and I don't think of myself as a, usually as a critic, and I don't try to write reviews because I don't like reviews because they imply good or bad. I sort of write essays about comedy. It's my goal, sort of, and specifically joke writing, I think is the thing that I write like writing about most. And so, when is it okay to write about a person's set? And, you know, like I saw Chris Rock bomb, and he said some really awful things, fairly not cool things, to see what he would kind of get away with. You know, that's what she was working out, And I think, Dave, my feeling that night when I wrote it, and I still might regret it, was this was at Radio City Music Hall. People were paying like $200 each ticket in New York City. This is a major market. To sort of demand people come to a show that sort of imperfect allows people to say, you can do better. Because if you don't, then there's no accountability whatsoever to do better. And I don't know, Dave. I don't know if he s- saw the reactions to those jokes and be like, "I nailed it." And then somehow, and who knows if he found it later that I was like, "No, you didn't," because I knew other people were there, like I thought he killed or whatever. And he, and I think he, I would say he, he, everyone laughed, but it was sort of I wouldn't say it's killing as much as I've seen comedians kill in a big venue like that and and all i was saying is that he can do better that's that's what your goal hypothetically is in a critic in that formula like if we don't say there is a line and that he went over it and fell down then like one what is being edgy if there's no line right if you're not offending anyone ever then you're not being edgy you're essentially just preaching to a converted or pretending to be edgy which mm. is truly awful and i think it's it's okay for people to say something is bad and i think that is the thing that comedians have not been able to get used to and actually bill burr who though he does a lot of sort of comedy around the sort of straw man of people that are too sensitive when you talk to him and i have he's kind of like it's like three people that get mad and then they're over it which is correct you know the, the biggest difference is sort of one there have always been people who have been as sensitive as they are now-ish, you know.
0: Lenny Bruce had, like, a rest of her Yeah, ind- he was ind- much more... Right? Yeah, right? For indecency, obscenity, and all those kind of things. And when you look at all the comics that have come since then, yeah. I'm like, that's your issue? Lenny Bruce? Yeah, like- <laughs> it's
1: he's talking about religion. But the thing is, people are allowed to say, you know, freedom of speech means if you can say a joke, no one's arresting you. Freedom of speech means I can say that joke. Could be better. Or, the sort of, like, phantom blogger, which... When they mean to, they mean sort of like a nobody. They sort of mean just because a person can write it on the internet does not mean it's like at the same level as other publications. And comedians are very sensitive. And I get it. I'm very sensitive. If, if my work was scrutinized as often as comedians are, I would have a hard time doing work. But I think what is interesting about when people talk about political correctness in this way is it seems like everyone has a different definition of what we're talking about. And then they just sort of say their definition forward and no one sort of listens to it because they have already a pre-established different definition so they say theirs that's like oh no political correctness is good because this and he's like no it's death of comedy because that means you can never do comedy on sensitive subjects like that's not what it means hmm. that's not what political correctness is it just <laughs> means. i mean if you define political correctness as that then yes Political correctness is killing comedy. But if you define it as essentially it is correct politically, whatever that means, then it just means there is a line where thing is not a good joke anymore. And it's partly because an audience has moved on from it. Ron Bennington is a radio host, serious radio host, and comedian. And
0: he's got an amazing show, Unmasked.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's terrific. And we've talked about this stuff. And he's just like, audiences don't move backwards. You can't be like, audiences are too sensitive and the audience gonna be like, you're right, use the N-word now, everybody, it's yeah. fine. You know, or like, call trans people, blah, 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 now. Audiences grow up. You know, they just, there's, it's not... Jerry Seinfeld, as a person who's never done politically incorrect, really, material anyway, is sensitive about, and I think he is a small case, but I think ultimately this is the reality, is... It's not that people are too politically correct. It's that there's a... When people say words that might be problematic, there's a pause of their brains. Being like, is this going to be offensive? Oh, it's not. And that pause is frustrating. I have to imagine for people that have been doing comedy for 30 years. Like, if you just say the word gay, the audience will be like... And then you can say the joke and then laugh, but the laugh will be different and worse. And the... And I understand tremendously why that would be frustrating because you've, you are comedian X and you've done a perfect job to write this joke to make sure it's not offensive. Because ultimately, if your joke is good and talks about sensitive subjects, it is because it is fine. Like it is because it is thoughtful, because. It is considered these sort of things that would offend people. No one's goal is to offend people, unless they're unless they're specifically the type of comedian who's like, "My goal is to offend people," and then it's not offensive because that is what the yeah. goal is. Yeah, like uh, you want to be mocked by Don Rickles, for example. Yeah, like, I mean,
0: like, look at my nose, look at my nose, do it, do it, do it, right? Yeah, and also
1: <laughs> he's like essentially just doing the same joke over and over again, but it and it, and also the people who don't want to be mocked by Don Rickles just aren't in the weren't in the same rooms as Don Rickles, and. I do believe there's certain spaces where the vernacular of the medium airs to those types of jokes. So, like at Roast, whatever rules that I think are okay in not Roast, I like Roast, you're, it's specifically designed, you're pretending you live in the past. When people uh Jewish, the joke's gonna be about you're Jewish, or when you're old, when you're gay, this sort of on your, this sort of. It's the playground stuff, right? Yeah, you yeah, make
0: fun of the fat kid for
1: being fat. Yeah. And the obvious stuff. And. I mean, like I've done, you know. at Least in the states, it's like uh, things for sometimes people's birthday parties they do roast with friends, which is a really dangerous idea. And my friend did it for his, and I remember being like, "You guys sure? Like, you guys don't write jokes for a living? You're just like people, like they're funny people, but to sit down and write is not a thing people do." And I remember they're like, "Oh, there's <laughs> we'll have this fat guy be part of it so we can make these sort of fat jokes, which are kind of about him, but also just like." oh, there's a fat person I'm writing a fat joke and they are there. And, you know, if you're a woman, the joke's going to be or slight, regardless. Yeah. I mean, like, if you view it, if you step out of it, you're like, all of these jokes are offensive. I tend to lean on, in the case of Roast and probably other ones, where it is defined by those things. It's both okay, but also okay to sort of be looked at. You know, it's interesting, Sarah Silverman, who's very good at them and has done ton, tons was sort of like taken aback by how many people made old jokes about her and at the james franco james franco roast she was like it's interesting everyone's talking about how old i was even though i'm younger than jeff ross the thing about roast which is a format i love is as an audience you just have to accept that people are still hurt by some of the things you say
0: (laughs) i yeah i would imagine there's always a couple where like oh damn that seemed like cut right to the bone
1: yeah i'd have to imagine so i mean
0: because they also do some research, too, right? So they'll find, like, if you were dating a celebrity girlfriend or something, like, they'll cut you, right? Like Yeah. I, I remember
1: I asked Neil Brennan for the favorite joke he wrote for somebody else. And he wrote a joke for, I think, Seth Rogen about Aziz. That he's like, Aziz doesn't know I wrote this joke. And I'm, like, seeing Aziz later today. And it wasn't even, like, a I can't remember if the, even if there was much of a punchline. It was more like, it's, like, good to see Aziz's face because he's always, like, looking down at his phone or whatever. Which is... Not a good joke, other than if you know that disease. It's, oh, it it's sort of like a revealing thing about disease. But if you agree upon the things, you can be sort of taken aback by it, but also laugh at it. You know, I the roast I did, I was sort of like, when someone said a joke that was specifically about me, I was like, because I they didn't know how I was going to react because you, you don't usually have people sort of make fun of you to your face. And they specifically, I, one guy made fun of my teeth. I was like, oh, that's Okay, cool. I, I'm actually okay with these jokes. I okay. didn't know, but I was like, and and I I wrote really mean jokes about other people, and most people are pretty. No one has seemed to be mad at it, and you know the problem with almost anything is uh, you tell or write bad jokes. If they're on television, then sort of like you, you people are going to notice it. But I think the main thing, and to get back what Bill Burr was saying, is like ultimately, actually you know, Bill Maher was talking to larry wilmore about the time he said n-word on his show and i'm not here to say he should or shouldn't have done that it's not my place to say but what is interesting he goes people cared about it for literally two weeks and then it ended and then people might remember it but sort of like there's too many things to care about and what ultimately you see sort of an exercise in caring about a thing and like yeah it adds up but not enough that like hbo's not gonna like continue his contract because enough people in sort of the industry black white were like yeah i think that's like you shouldn't have done it but like you know and larry Wilmore was not like you're okay to saying it but he's like yeah that was bad essentially like comedians make bad jokes when you make bad jokes on sensitive subjects people it's that, more dangerous.
0: Yeah, that gets almost worse, right? There's a semi-grace when it's at least funny. I'm like, yeah. all right, that was racist, but it's funny so we can maybe let that, go. it's again, the playground humor, yeah. right? When like somebody says, like you make an Indian convenience store joke or something like that, right? Like, yeah. all right, that's maybe a little funny or something. But you have that kind of built in, and this is I think what you're saying with the audiences too, where like, it also depends on why the audience is laughing, because Chris Rock has that one, uh, black people vs niggers, right? That yeah. whole like sociological breakdown. Fantastic bit. But are you laughing? Cause are you you like the fact that he's using the N word and you get to be racist <laughs> sure. and like, or are you laughing because it's like, yo, I know people like this and I'm like, I know exactly the scenes and things that he's describing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, ultimately, a comedian has no control over those things, and if they care about why people are laughing, to a degree, then they shouldn't do those jokes because. They have no control over why the people are laughing, and they have no control over how who's getting the material. I imagine, like, you know, the famous examples, Dave Chappelle's like, oh, you realize that people are maybe just laughing. If they're, like, parroting stereotypes, and someone's might be just laughing at the stereotypes. You're like, wait, are we doing sort of good? You know, not doing well, but doing, like, a good thing, and maybe not. And that is sort of a complicated thing, ultimately, with, you know the truth is essentially you have no idea why the audience is laughing the audience might just sort of like the sound of the way you said a thing and then have no idea what the references you're even talking about are or they're sort of laughing at a face you make when you tell that joke you know the the sort of idea that jokes are uh, objective subjective objective <laughs> that's the word that they sort of exist and there's their tr- the truth is clear and the opinion is correct and what people find funny about it is always, is completely incorrect you know like different people will see a different person saying the same joke and have a different reaction to it and a comedian essentially has no control over that all artists sort of don't yeah jeff garland i always quote he has like what other people think of you is none of your business like essentially like you you're creating the art you want to create people's perspective on it is ultimately not often the job of the artist you know how i write about comedy i often say is inspired by how i think about like fine art painting and um i'm a big fan of photography and and i i think about artists who like i created create these sort of abstract works with the specific goal of not explaining why they do it i have 10 reasons i did this thing i'm not gonna tell you any of them are and ultimately all art operates in that same sort of way but it's you know it's complicated and I think what happens with a lot of culture is the sort of like what a person represents there's sort of there's um, essentially criticism that is uh, what's the word not process uh, formalism. essentially like the essentially what is the process of how they're telling a joke and is it good because of the nature of how the form is used broadly or whatever and I tend to write formally or whatever in in that style and, but a lot of people write about sort of the context around how a joke exists or how a comedian exists. And that criticism is, has become much more popular or much more present in certain ways. So then how do the jokes age then? Or do they age like... No joke. I think almost no joke ages as well. Uh, sorry to interrupt. I just like... No, no, no. But it's just like,
0: you know, that's why I'm like... Part of the, we were talking about the, the specials, right? And so you have a special, you can go to like something like Eddie Murphy, yeah. uh, Raw, or some of the older ones, right? Uh, you can even dig up stuff from like Woody Allen when sure. he was doing his bits and things like that. And, and same thing, like in rock and roll, for example, you go back to the 70s or something, you listen to Led Zeppelin or The Who yeah. or something, right? As much as you listen to like Drake or something contemporary today. You wouldn't go back to Chris Rock or to like Richard I, Pryor or. I think.
1: I go back because it's like my job to have some sort of context historically. And essentially, let me see how to explain this because it's uh, somewhat complicated. But like, if if I've never heard a band and have never heard anyone influenced by that band, if I hear the original band first, I'll be like, this band is amazing. If you hear all the bands influenced by them first, and then you hear the original band, you're like, you just sort of, it doesn't feel as as strong but often you can hear like i had never heard new order i heard a lot of bands that i heard sound like new order and then i heard new order i'm like this is one of my favorite bands or whatever and because it's sort of the truth of this thing it's not a copy of a copy i think comedy almost all comedy is built upon the comedy that came right before it
0: it's like lego on building blocks yeah
1: so there's i don't know if the show i'm dying up here has con- gone here it's based upon a book about comedy in the late 1970s. It's uh, produced by Jim Carrey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, they uh, show Showtime Showtime in the States. Yeah, we get it here. on. So there's a scene in it, in sort of my opinion. It's set think, in Car-
0: seventy set. like you said, in Caroline's is like the, I think the name of the bar. Uh,
1: it's called Goody, Goldies. Goldie's. It's supposed to be like the comedy store. Yes. So yeah. there's Judy Gold. Oddly enough, it's not the Goldie's of Judy. Judy Gold is playing a character who's supposed to be so the set the 1970s and she's playing like the type of comedian that exists in the 1950s so it was essentially like a post borscht belt style like jewishy comedian that by the 1970s was seen as so antiquated and, and old and so she performs at this what the club like this hot club and you know no one really likes it and then there's a sort of this fight that she has with the owner of the club being like, oh, you shouldn't come back, whatever. And so then Judy Gold's character is outside smoking a cigarette and she's talking to this young female comedian who in the show is positioned to be sort of an interesting comedian. Uh, but not... She's taking risks, too. Yeah, taking risks, yeah, yeah. And so Judy Gold was this, like... I She's like, oh, I like your comedy. He's like, no, you don't. Our comedy our art does not last. We have the benefit of being able to have the immediate reaction from people, but as a result, the best we can do is sort of just be the thing that people build upon. And and I think that is ultimately the case. It really is hard to go back to comedy if you were not, if you didn't grow up on it. Like, you can listen to old comedy if you grew up on it, because there's a different sort of sensation happening. But, like... To go back to, like, Woody Allen or Steve Martin yeah, or some wild and crazy guy. Yeah, like, I go back, like, I... I love Steve Martin and I can go back and watch it, but I'm aware that my listening of it and consuming of it is more academic or more sort of like edifying than a matter of like, this is as funny as I would have found it if I listened to the 1970s, because like he changed comedy. And then as a result, comedy was changed and I'm like tremendously influenced by the people who are directly influenced by him. But you go back and like some stuff is funny and the idea makes sense. But the sort of the tone of it is different. It's a little bit bigger than it would be now, and I think ultimately all it's very hard for comedian comedy to age well. Even comedy about social issues, it could resonate, but it won't sort of be funny in the same way.
0: George Carlin's like seven things you can't say on TV, and I'm like, we've said all of those things. Now.
1: Yeah, you're sort of like, and you'd be like, cool, you you can get it, but it's sort of, I mean, it's even like, I listen to Stephen Wright, and I'm like. To me, Mitch Hedberg is my Stephen Wright, and that doesn't mean one's better than the other, even though Mitch Hedberg was sort of like doing Stephen Wright, but it's sort of his way. It's just like, I was not, Stephen Wright wasn't the the Stephen Wright of the time I was there, you know? And there are comedians that have the hard time because they're almost only transitional. They had a tone, and it was important in time, and then sort of like, I think a lot of comedians of sort of the early aughts, kind of before the second comedy boom, but they're sort of famous, um, set a certain sort of tone, and then have people have moved on from it i think like i always think about like dimitri martin was like a comedian that felt like he pioneered sort of like oh we're gonna be sort of like nicer or whatever but like but still kind of being the mitch hebert style but then it seems like he has kind of been left behind as like a lot of comedians that are influenced by him have become so big or whatever
0: he also is kind of like a weird thing too where it's like he's kind of out of time and out of place because it's just like weird jokes, right? Like, it'll just like...
1: Yeah, it's hard.
0: It's not like the same kind of contemporary thing we were talking about with like Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle where they're talking about trans people or like something kind of quote-unquote contemporary.
1: But ultimately, look, there's comedians now who don't talk about hot pun issues that feel like they're contemporary comedians for whatever reason of the style they do. I think it's just a matter of... And it's hard to sort of pinpoint what is a thing that makes a comedian a thing that is... temporal and but sometimes you're like that was that defines a time and doesn't transcend that time but there is some value to be like oh this is what comedy 2008 seemed like because i just really do think comedy is a very hard time transcending because it it kind of moves forward and which is sort of funny because there's sort of this idea that Older people were like, Oh, comedy's you know, like the close SNL's not as funny as it was and blah blah blah, is the example is most used, and you're like, Yeah, it is. I mean, give and take, but SNL to the people that are watching it at the time you watch SNL when you thought it was the best, think SNL is that thing. Simpson's same
0: thing too, right? Yeah. Like depending on which generation you come in, it's been almost now twenty nine, thirty years, right? So Yeah.
1: And I think I think you can be like you can tell when it's it's, sometimes it's harder and it, but it seems the same thing right I, i've interviewed them and they're like if you ask 20 year olds or 24 year olds they'll think the golden age and ex- goes through season 16 or whatever or they think it's you know like and they might watch season one and be like what is this sort of like slow old-timey thing yeah the voices and, are not in the right and- yeah the voices aren't right i mean like i i always think about like in terms of like my genesis as a person who thinks about comedy that the main thing is that I was incredibly lucky that my time in which I watched The Simpsons was the time when The Simpsons was like really at a sort of a operational peak in terms of the talent there. Schwarzwelder! Yeah, but like it was David Merkin was there. I mean, like essentially like I started, I don't remember a time when I wasn't watching it, but I, I think I probably really started watching it seriously by season three and then it was also always on repeat, so I kind of, like, consumed it constantly. So, like, I was very lucky that that was the time when it was good, right? It's like, I could have been growing up a different age, and Family Guy would be my Simpsons, and then I would have that sort of sensibility. And would be like, why is the Simpsons so slow? Why don't they cut away all <laughs> yeah, the time? Yeah.
0: <laughs> for your journey, then, let's, like, I mean, we've been kind of talking about comedy in general, but then, like, that was what kind of sparked it for you as part of like, the Simpsons? Kind yeah. Of?
1: Like, that's... It's uh, funny when I used to write for Splitsider, which is a comedy website, cover journalist enterprise. I We had this sort of meetup of the people that are main contributors. And I remember one guy was like, What is your Simpsons? And I was like, And I knew what he meant. I was like, Oh, it's actually The Simpsons. But to some people, Saturday Night Live or Seinfeld, you know, for our age demographic, some, you know, for people a little bit older, um, it might be SCTV. You'll see people like oh, so SCTV would be like what or uh, Kids in the Hall represent the, hall. the yeah, Canadian, Canada. yeah. Or um, Mr. Mr. Show is a really big one where people would be Mr. Show sort of their entry point into understanding what comedy is. And mine was The Simpsons. I sort of I was lucky to grow up in a household where my parents were like they thought a thing was good and sort of obviously wasn't adult adult. They're like, yeah. They, why would they not watch this sort of thing? They won't get it, and it's true. Like, I don't think I got the things that are I'll now see in Simpsons episodes now. So I sort of always watched it.
0: Looney Tunes is kind of the same way too. There's a couple yeah. of bits and things that they'll say, yeah, where I'm like, I didn't get that at all. You know, so they're like
1: doing Cary Grant references. Yeah, I don't know who the hell Cary yeah, Cary I know. Is. I mean,
0: but it's not like it's offensive or anything. It's just like I'm just like I don't have like you said. I'm like I'm 10 years old. I'm like he fell
1: off the cliff. That's yeah, all I want. But I think there's still and but it helps and the sort of tone of it there's sort of, like, every person in my generation has this sort of, like, I think I think watch The Simpsons has this sort of appreciation of, like, talking old-timey in a way that it's just because The Simpsons had that appreciation. <laughs> yeah. So we had this sort of, like, detached appreciation for, like, a vaudeville way of speaking that I just, because the Simpsons liked it. So, but there was, um, there was an episode of The Simpsons, this is, this is when I always think of, when I tell my quote-unquote origin story, and it's not like I do it all the time, it's mostly to people uh, who are, like, my friends or whatever, but there's a Simpsons joke in season five. Six? five uh, in an episode called uh, Secrets of a Successful Marriage, where Homer becomes a teacher to teach marriage counseling. And essentially, he just becomes a teacher. And he, the, I can't remember what it said, but essentially he goes like, I'm taking this seriously. I even cut, put tweed patches on a suede blazer or something. And Marge goes, like, it's supposed to be sweat patches on a tweed blazer. You ruined a perfectly good jacket. And Homer <laughs> lifts up a second blazer with two holes cut out of it and goes, correction, Marge, are two perfectly good jackets. Something like that. And I remember that joke, and I don't know if it was the first time I saw it or another time, It's was like, someone wrote that joke. It's like such an understanding that someone, that is a thing that existed, that someone was like, created that. And I, I think I've always been sort of... Ex- interested in the idea that someone creates these things that are funny and it's funny i interviewed david merkin and i was like i need to ask you about this joke i've always wanted to who wrote it and he goes i get this all the time i remember every joke you know from that era i was like cool it's like oh this joke about the two he's like yeah i have no idea who wrote that joke it's oh, wow. like probably george myers but i have no idea so there's it was that and then i watch a living color um was big in my house and then uh, we watched seinfeld Living Color
0: was huge, like, for a ripple effect. Like, I think it kind of flies a little bit under the radar. A lot of people don't talk about it. But for the impact that it had, like, it sculpted my whole high school. Like,
1: just the catchphrases and the... uh... Yeah, and it was so, like, big. I don't know. It's hard to, like... I I think it's also on earlier than SNL was. But, yeah, I was just, like, sort of very into it. And then the other thing, the first time I remember caring about stand-up was when Bring the Pain came out. Chris Rock's Bring the Pain, which is like, I think a lot of people of my my generation, you meet essentially every comedian under the age of 40 or probably between the age of like 29 and like 39. They're like, oh, I did comedy because of Bring the Pain or whatever. And I remember watching it. I remember not understanding so much of it. And it's crazy because now I think back and I'm like, why did my parents let me? There's like big parts about tossing salad in, in <laughs> yeah, that. I and i just like, I don't know what's happening in yeah. this joke. But there's just like, I was obsessed with him. I like bought all his albums, which is crazy because I was maybe nine when it came out. But there, that you got that was something was happening, and his points were interesting.
0: It was different; like it stood out; like it didn't seem like something you would normally see. Well, just
1: it was a tremendous thing. It demanded to be sort of reckoned with, Mm -hmm. and you know, again, Chris Rock is able to set up his jokes in a way that everyone gets what he's talking about. Even if you don't agree with him, you understand that you're like talking about those things in the terms of how he set it up. Yeah. And I just remember sort of it ending with uh, the big piece of chicken joke. And I, the dad gets a big piece of chicken. And I was just like, this is so funny. It's not even like I lived in a house like that. Yeah, I know. It's just like, I never thought of myself as a comedy nerd in so much as comedy nerd wasn't a word until 2007, 2008. And I was like, Oh, I guess that was the thing I was when I was, only consuming comedy all these years, but I didn't think about it because no one knew other people were doing it. Nerds have like convention, like Star sure. Trek conventions and things
0: like that. Whereas with comedy, you just kind of either just go to the nightclub or whatever, Yuck yeah. yucks or something, or <laughs> Caroline's or whatever, and then you go home and then it's like, it's not even really a convention. It's just there's no way to get together and yeah. no like. I
1: mean, the closest is if you live in the cities where there's a scene, you are part of that scene as an audience. But like before 2000, Seven, that means you lived in L.A. or New York or Chicago, essentially in the state. And that was just like there's really booms of people in that stand up in particular in those cities because the improv scenes are a little bit different. But I didn't put two and two together that all these comedians I like are like friends of each other that are doing comedy in the Lower East Side of New York City. And then I graduated from college and moved to New York and I saw a few things. But the big thing was, you know, my goal in life was to work in the music business. And I eventually moved to LA to work at a talent agency, and I was very bad at the job. It's a lot of phone calls and filing and like responding emails, and I'm bad at all that stuff. But there, I met a, a friend, and he was like, "Oh, you should come to these comedy shows I'm going to." I was like, "Okay," I kind of like comedy, but I hadn't really seen in a while. I used to go to the Comedy Cellar a lot. I would use a fake ID to go to the Comedy Cellar when I was like nineteen and twenty. And I would see... That's when the first time I saw Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle. You know, I saw Dave Chappelle do three hours of sort of nothing. But I then kind of gave it up because I kind of got tired of people doing the exact same joke over and over again every time I was there. But yeah, so then so then, he goes, come to this show. It's at UCB. This is in LA. It's called Comedy Death Ray. This guy I know, Scott, books it. It's a really good show. And I went and it was incredible. I remember the lineup because uh, Hannibal Buress was first. This is essentially, this is 2008, 2009. So Hannibal Buress had not put out an album yet.
0: Nobody knew who he was. No,
1: I mean, like, people, deeper comedy nerds than I knew who he was. But I, how would you know who he was? He wasn't even a writer on anything yet. He was just like a guy. He was barely out of being homeless at that point. And I couldn't believe how funny it was. I just could not fathom it. And then we bounced back next week and Kyle Kinane was hosted. I still can't believe how hard I he made me laugh that time. I almost like just dying laughing and and no one can really make me laugh as hard as he can. There's one time I almost threw up. <laughs> That's a good compliment. He was just crazy because like I see comedy all the time. <laughs> and then I was just sort of obsessed that all these comedians are happening and they all knew each other and it was different than what I had heard. And I just sort of became fascinated with this time period and then podcasts were starting and I really got in on the first wave of podcasts you should uh,
0: plug the podcast oh so this is
1: way before my podcast okay. good one came out which is when i wrote about podcasts first i was like the first thing i did i wrote about comedy podcasts when there were only like nine of them and
0: that that's was how, an easy gig
1: yeah that's why i was saying people i used to listen to 20 podcasts 20 hours a week of podcasts but i was listening to every one and now there's a zillion but mine's good mine's not, i wouldn't say it's best but it's good and then i started writing and i was like oh maybe i can try to write for comedy about comedy and then i I just sort of got lucky that I was able to. I, you know, I, I don't know why I can do it. You know, I've written an article that I'm like, I don't know who this would be for. And then people read it. So I'm like, I guess, you know, there's this idea of um, poking the frog or carving up the frog. It based on a, I think, Mark Twain quote about how, um, are you be white? He, I don't know. It's essentially a quote that's like, you don't want to dissect a joke because it's not funny anymore. And it's a thing in comedy journalism I've avoided for essentially my first four years, five years writing about comedy, but I would talk about it in certain ways. And an editor's like, just write a thing like that.
0: You have to develop a language, right? Cause yeah. like people have been reviewing music and albums for years. So there's a way to kind of describe basically what is a sound. Yes. Right?
1: To somebody. But even in that, people have a hard time writing music criticism, pop music critics like, oh, the chord change there, the way switched from modal to blah, blah, blah. Yeah, People have a hard time even with that. But you can still like a song if you know that there's the math behind it. I just eventually got to a point where I'm like, literally all I do is listen to people talk about jokes, and I still like jokes. How is it possible that if I wrote about it, people wouldn't hate comedy from now on? And I started writing more of these sort of columns. I go, this is funny because of this, essentially. Or this is how this works. I don't say it's funny because of this. I'm like, this is how this works. It's kind of like the old man behind the wizard. Yeah. Some of these comedians are incredibly deliberate with why they do it this way you know i wrote about the sort of the poetry of a jerry Seinfeld joke and essentially he deliberately puts words in different places for pause in a mid-sentence to essentially end the phrase on a certain word because that's the key word or whatever he's very meticulous yeah i mean there's a joke that i wrote about on his new netflix special about living in long island or on, on long island but in the city or whatever and the joke is sort of like it's about nothingness it's essentially about this is a person who's like obsessed with this thing. I get it so often when I write about Jerry Seinfeld, which is a lot, which is like, oh, all this comedy's about nothing. And I, it's a complete misunderstanding of what that means. It doesn't mean that it's not about anything. It's that it's about nothingness. It's essentially about how a thing has no meaning. It's like about, it's existentialism. It is it is like legitimately waiting so for rice cracker. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, so, I had, had an opportunity to create a podcast. I just had an idea. I like talking about jokes. Every time I hear comedians talk about process, all I want them to hear them talk about but they don't talk about it too long because they fear people are going to be bored. Other comedians don't have the attention span for it, so they make other jokes. And I'm like, I want I want a podcast where comedians are interviewed. They're not sort of having having a conversation with that a per- the host is incredibly prepared. And really focuses on who they are as a person who creates something. I'm very interested in the artist as a person who has a process, less than sort of the artist as sort of a representation of something else. The craft, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Jen Kirkman was like, this is a really valuable, when I interviewed her, she was like, this is a really valuable service you're offering. Oh, yeah, yeah. In a way, because she was like, people don't know that we work this hard. Her episode was one of my favorites because like, she has this like 15-minute closer on her new special that's about street harassment, but has essentially like three different movements in a way. And part of it's real and part of it's fictionalized and part of it is essentially like a one-person show about this guy that she created. And everything was both deliberate but also sort of riffed on the time. And when I say what my goal is in doing this, my goal is for people not to think of comedians as one thing. That comedians are not plumbers who have a job to make you laugh. They are an artist who, like, uses the medium of making you laugh to express themselves. And, at, like any other artist, they all have different vocabularies in which to do it. In so much as every Lichtenstein looks like freaking dots in a comic book, you know, like every Chris Rock joke has the, like, double repeated setup or whatever. Like, Dolly has the, the paint, the clocks, and Sarah Silverman would have that sort of ironic girliness and now this sort of like worldly existential thing that she's doing which is incredibly brilliant and they are not sort of just like clowns that are like there that to to be entertaining while you eat overpriced french fries and cocktails many of them and the best ones are intentional artists and I found a way with this podcast to show that and I I was hoping I didn't know it was going to work I didn't know if they'd be willing to talk about it and I didn't know if they'd be able to because I think they can and sometimes the other comedians they will but there is not. a
0: bit of magic involved right because yes. it's like like you said Chris Rock is just kind of bombing for an hour He's yeah. just kind of floundering a little bit but like. he
1: doesn't Yeah, I mean like what ultimately I'm doing is you're getting up to the point before and then magic happens because you can say oh Jerry pauses after he says in in this sentence because the laugh line is in and if you kept on going you would essentially be walking on his own laugh and it allows him to sort of have laughs inside a joke that essentially it's not even part of the laughing part but they're essentially just sort of like the rhythm in which he says it the fact that he's up there saying it is what is the funny part and the thing that makes it interesting is sort of all this other stuff right i think a painting can still be beautiful without you thinking about it but then you can also think about it and i contend that comedy is an art form that you know allows for deeper appreciation just like any other art form it just hadn't existed because no one cared enough um there was this sort of stigma of comedy is just like a mentality of like you know we're just like doing this job and we are an artist we're sort of like craftsmen or like we're just grinding it out or whatever this antiquated idea of what comedy is or isn't and i think this generation enough of them have been raised by good people or sort of raised to see good comedy enough to know what they want their comedy to be like and i want to give them a platform to talk about it and only that the goal is to be less than 45 minutes because mark maron talks about usually around 30 minutes or 45 minutes everything kind of relaxes and then you're just having a conversation i was like that's not what this podcast is it is not a conversation it is a sort of like excavation into a sort of who a person is through their craft and they could be funny about it you know s- sometimes they relive the joke so it's just funny the fact that they're, they're essentially like oh i remember when and they essentially retell the real version of the story and so yeah we've done 13 episodes which was the first season the second season i believe is coming back the end of october
0: and who's going to be in the second season
1: we record almost all of it now uh maria bamford i believe will be the first up of the first season she talked about her commencement speech she recently gave which was really funny because unlike everyone else, she picked a joke that bombed really hard because she's, it's so, just so funny mm, that you yeah. pick something that no one liked yeah. <laughs> the audience. liked, and people afterwards really liked it. Bill Burr, um, Ron Funches, uh, Roy Wood Jr. who I'm interviewing at Chess for laughs, Natasha Leggero. I really love talking to her. Will Forte talks about the sex scenes in MacGruber. Which I've always thought were two of the funniest, the, essentially the funniest scene in of like the last fifteen years of comedy. Who else did we record? Oh, Jeff Garland. Jeff Garland. His episode is because Jeff Garland refuses to pick a joke. Jeff Garland first canceled, and I and I knew it's like I guarantee he canceled once he learned what the premise of the podcast was. So I went back to his people and be like, tell him that I'm happy to do it with him if he agrees to us. A- acknowledged why he canceled and he doesn't have to pick a joke and so we talked about why he he doesn't like to think of his comedy as jokes and that one was really fun and those are sort of uh most of them you know there'll be a few more that i will record i'll probably record at vulture festival which is a a festival that i other than my job as a comedy journalist and a host of this podcast I, i plan i help plan the festivals that we do one in New York and one in LA which is sort of these kind of big culture festivals I interviewed Bill Burr at one of them and so I I probably will do an episode there but I can't announce it yet because that is not public but okay, uh, it's going to be uh, really great the show's better than it once was I figured out how the show works and that has been really it's sad. half the battle yeah <laughs> yeah the first two episodes I think are good but like sort of not what it is in terms of the energy of it and the flow of it now all the episodes have a certain sort of they don't they're all different because every comedian's different, but the sort of like journey we go on hopefully is around the same. Oh, Eugene Merman is another one.
0: Sorry. Okay, nice. So where can people find you online then? Where's the on the internet?
1: Sure. Um, um. The, on Twitter I'm at Jesse David Fox and then Jesse David Fox at Vulture and the podcast is Good One, a podcast about jokes, so you can find it iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. There's a Twitter for it, which is good one podcast you know, at Good One Podcast any of those things I'm, you know, I changed my name from Jesse Fox to David Fox professionally for the reason that it'd be easier to Google. So if you look around for Jesse David Fox, I'm, uh, I'm that one.
0: Okay. Thank you, Jesse, for but, coming in and oh, like talking having... comedy and analyzing it and like yeah, figuring it out. And like,
1: you are quite the, uh, the comedy nerd. So I'm just so serious about it. I don't, I'm not always, I can be funny about other things, but I just like, can't <laughs> be, I'm just like, I'm like a professor or whatever. I, 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 I uh, I'm aware. (laughs) That's how I talk about it. (laughs) Okay.
0: We'll end it there. We'll put down your misery then. We'll go make some jokes now. Thank you, Jesse.
1: Thank you.